I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We are streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network, the only current, the Alternate Current, and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And uh, before we get to our next guest who is waiting in the wings, uh, I just wanted to also give a, uh, a quick uh, mention. Uh, on the show page, you'll see a link, uh, 21 Wire, on location in the Middle East. Uh, we are planning to be there in the spring into multiple countries, and uh, we need your help to make that happen. And some of you stepped up. We got a fantastic uh, couple donations from a couple of our listeners uh, this past week. If you're able to help uh, in, in, on any level uh, with any amount, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, we have a pretty ambitious goal uh, we need to get to in order to be able to report for at least a month uh, on the ground, and it will be uh, quite extraordinary. We also plan to broadcast live uh, from on the ground there too, something that no one's uh, done before on radio. Uh, and so that's going to be something. Uh, so for myself, Vanessa Bealy, uh, and our team, uh, support team here, uh, we need your help to make that happen. And so this is your chance to step up and we really appreciate it if you do. There's a link right on the show page, Support 21 Wire. There's also a link there, help uh, with our Middle East uh, investigative fund. Uh, so, you know, that's something that uh, we hope we can reach that goal uh, in, in the next three weeks, basically. So this week, next week, and the following week. And so, yeah, it's going to be something. But uh, we'll need your help to make that happen. So thank you very much uh, if you're able to do that now. Our next guest, um, imagine a world, imagine a world, if you will, it sounds like a Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> imagine a world, if you will, uh, where all of the um, uh, media coverage uh, was based on uh, good reasoning and logic and uh, our political discourse was civil uh, and everyone respected uh other people's ability to put forward a rational case and something that makes sense and evidence-based for the most part, one would hope. Imagine that world. Wouldn't that be a lovely place? Well, this is the sort of the world that our next guest uh, is, is, is trying to promote. Uh, his name is Jeff DeRizzo, and uh, we've got a link to his YouTube channel right now on the show page, which is Confronting Sophistry. Jeff is a uh, media professional uh, and works in production. 
and uh, does direction as well. And uh, so Jeff's taken it upon uh, himself. One of his missions here in recent years uh, is to try to help uh, bring this conversation uh, back to a place uh, where an end to the endless uh, fallacious um, uh, discourse and arguments that are basically running our political system and our public life uh, really into uh, into the ground. Uh, for anybody that's been paying attention the last couple of years, especially. But um, thank you for joining us, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, Patrick, thanks for having me on today. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, so Jeff, let's get, you know, let's get started. We're going to talk about a number of things. You know, one of the big focuses of this conversation today is going to be, um, you know, your view as a media professional uh, looking at, you know, the, how, how things are manipulated uh, for audiences and we'll talk about the white helmets later as well, um, as in your your view technically as well, your view on that and and some of the uh, techniques that are being used there. But um, just get started with just tell us what this project, which you started um, about a year ago, I think, uh, confronting sophistry. That's the title of a YouTube channel. You made this series of uh, videos, which are very informative uh, and really say a lot. Um, you know, about the state of the kind of conversation that we're having uh, in general in public, especially in America uh, in these days. And you're pointing out some of the problems that you're noticing there, the things that you've observed and, and stuff that you would like to, to really try to correct as best you can uh, with your efforts as well. But how did you get this idea? And just explain to us the concept behind it. Okay, so um, I guess I noticed that there was a, you know, like you had explained in the intro, a lack of civil discourse, and that people were shying away from an argument, and instead of making an argument, they'd make these little passive-aggressive remarks with the implication that the argument had already been had, and, and they'd already won the argument. And that's that was a very infuriating for me to come across and, and in the media, and sort of I understood once I went out into the real world and started doing video production as a business that video production was a big part of shaping that perception. So I wanted to trace the roots of that problem. And what, what that led me to was something called sophistry, which comes from the same root word as philosophy, which is Sophia, meaning wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom or the appreciation of wisdom. Now, sophistry is the appearance of wisdom or a sort of false wisdom. Um, so, so I think that humans as a necessity and as, as a survival mechanism, we, we take shortcuts to making decisions and these are, that's called heuristics. So I use an example in the show of you can look at the weather app and you can know with a certain degree of certainty what the weather is going to be tomorrow without knowing all the individual uh, pieces of information that leads you to that conclusion. So, you know, as, as humans, we, we sort of have to fall back on these shortcuts, but sophistry by giving the appearance of this logic gives us a shortcut to making decisions about really important things like public policy and, you know, how, how governments and medias operate and how, basically the direction that we should be going as a society. So I, I, I think my show is to basically take a step back 
and say, well, while heuristics help us in some ways, they hurt us in others. And, uh, and so sophistry kind of uses these little bag of tricks that are called lo- logical fallacies. And uh, part of my show was pointing out what these logical fallacies are. One, one example of a logical fallacy is, is ad hominem. And what, what that means is basically attacking the character of the person who is make, trying to make a point rather than, rather than deconstructing the logic of the point they're trying to make. Um, and, a, and an example of that in, in what's happening in the current time is, is this Trump versus the media. Now, President Trump in his campaign and, in his, and now as the president has made the claim that the media is dishonest and he's provided evidence to back that up. And, you know, I think that's a lot of the reason why he got the support to get elected. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, so if, now if Donald Trump then says, you know, hypothetically, let's create a hypothetical situation where he then says some extremely false statement and he resigns because of it. And he's proven to be false. That doesn't discount his original point about the media being uh, being dishonest because one has really nothing to do with the other. You can make a you could make a million errors in judgment and you could make one correct judgment and those all those errors in judgment don't serve to nullify the the point that you were originally trying to make. So if he's wrong about his analysis of Iran or of Syria, that doesn't discount the point that he's trying to make about the media. And so they use these attacks against his character, but they can do that all they want and play a game of gotcha. But his original point that they're being dishonest is, is still true at the end of the day. Yeah. And another example of a, of a logical fallacy is the red herring, I think. And I learned this as a kid growing up watching Scooby-Doo cartoons. You know, the red herring is when uh, you want to distract from a real investigation. And it, so instead you focus on something that's irrelevant to figuring out the truth of the situation. So a, red, a great example of a red herring is the, is the, Russian, is the Russian hack, right? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of focusing on the content of the leaked information about how, you know, the, the Democratic... Uh, primary was basically stolen the media has chosen to focus on the source of the leaks uh and and as john mcafee pointed out on uh, a recent episode of boiler room um any sufficiently sophisticated hacker knows how to cover their tracks as a hacker so really focusing on the who's the source of the leaks is distracting you from the issue of what's the content of the leaks what uh, and and can that content be verified and corroborated? That's really the issue. That's really the issue that should be discussed. Yeah. Well, that's that that's been proven out. Actually, you know, there, everything that has been uh, put on WikiLeaks in terms of John Podesta's emails, for instance, or uh, the DNC leaks, it's all true. And so, and there's some profound. Uh, you know, there's some prof- profound points that have been exposed through both of those 
um, leaks or hacks, whichever, it doesn't really matter. There's been some profound points, and some of those go to the core of the functioning of America's democracy, and it had nothing to do with Russia. And so rather than face those questions, America has basically, um, half of America at least, maybe more, um, has chosen to scapegoat, uh, to, to avoid having to deal with these fundamental questions that go to the core of democracy and society and the Constitution and everything in the United States. Um, a convenient distraction. Definitely the biggest red herring probably in the history of, of red herrings, maybe. Um, right. It's, it's getting really dangerous. And I think um, on it, it, this observation holds true both on the personal level that you have with your personal relationships and this, this large-scale macro level that we're talking about. Uh, but I, I think it's this, this ego mentality that's, that's perpetuated by the media that being right is more important than finding out the facts. And it's the, the media prior, prioritizes their, their ego over finding out the truth. And so people emulate that in their, in their lives. So that pattern gets, you know, repeated on, you know, in, in areas where it's not just a macro big issue, it's just small issues in people's personal lives. So I think part of this making this show has been me being open about my my journey of, you know, we all have egos. We all want to be right about things. But if we can find a way to prioritize instead of instead of our ego being the first priority, uh, finding truth should be the first priority. And I think there's a proverb that says, you know, if you correct a fool, he'll hate you. And if you correct a wise man, he'll love you. And, you know, in, in my experience, that that bears out to be true. And so as I mentioned, um, you mentioned, uh, so, you know, made reference to Socrates and uh, Plato's Republic um, in some of your YouTube videos. And uh, that's th- that's really interesting. I think, you know, tell us about Socrates, you know, who when I first discovered Socrates, I, I sort of got the vision of him as a sort of. Uh, the, uh, the the Jack Kerouac of his day, uh, maybe slightly smarter than Kerouac, but, you know, getting into bar fights, you know, I'll do poems for food uh, or poems for drugs as it was in the 60s. But, um, you know, th- this sort of journeyman um, who just went around and really upset a lot of people. And yet the elites of, of ancient Greece loved to have him around as sort of a court sort of exotic pet, as it were. Um, who would come to parties, he would show up, um, he would hold court, and everyone would sort of come and challenge him. Those who liked what he said would love when he dug into somebody, and those who didn't like what he was saying would, would see it as an affront or an attack on the establishment. So t- t- tell us about this guy, you know, as you see him, the persons of so- Socrates. Right, so I originally found Socrates, you know, late, late in, my, in my college career, and I, what really attracted me uh, about the stories of Socrates was his attitude, um, and what I just what I talked about a, a minute ago about he didn't seem to have this attachment to being right about something. He has this very um, he has a very open mentality to to po- the possibility that he's wrong, and 
he that's why he loves and welcomes open discussion with people. But the where where I took the story, it was the story of the end of Socrates' life, where he he tells the story how he went to an oracle, and the oracle says he asked the oracle, "Who is the wisest man alive?" The oracle tells him, "Socrates is the wisest man alive," and he doesn't believe this. He he knows that there's so many things about the world that he doesn't know that there's no way that he could be the wisest man in the world. So he decides to put this oracle's prophecy to the test and he starts his journeys and he journeys all around the world and talks to all different types of, of people who claim to be experts in some degree or another. And he just uses this method of asking them questions. He, if he, if he asks them something and they give him an answer and he doesn't know what they mean, he just asks them to clarify what they mean. And he surprisingly finds out that when he's just asking people to simply state their point and he's really just trying to understand it, they get upset when he asks them too many questions. He keeps inquiring because he still doesn't understand why they think their view is correct. And this inquiry gets him, makes him a lot of enemies because the people that he's arguing with don't really have any responses to his questions because the questions that he's asking in many cases prove that their arguments are contradictory and that they're holding two contradictory views simultaneously, which is called cognitive dissonance. And when somebody exposes you for having cognitive dissonance, there's a visceral reaction of anger. So he continues to do this because he feels like it's his, his purpose in life is to just inquire, ask questions, just to continue getting a little bit more and more and more knowledge about what is and is not true. So eventually he's got so many enemies that and uh, enemies of people who are powerful within the Greek society. So he's put on trial and the charge is corrupting the youth, which is, which is pretty funny because all he ever did was ask questions and he didn't really promote any ideas or you know, theories, he really just questioned the ideas and theories that were already out there. And a lot of people didn't want that. And, but, but me as the reader, I saw that as Socrates trying to take the discourse in a positive direction, in a productive and constructive direction. And, and the response of society to that was put him to death. And that's what they did. And he makes an impassioned speech you know, at, even at the moment of his death and says, I still believe that I'm doing the right thing in, in asking questions to try to find the truth. And you can, you can put me to death and there will be millions like, like me after I, after I go. So you can't really, you can't really win in this if you're not open to discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So, he, yeah. He, uh, he basically his fear of, uh, his fear of being a hypocrite was greater than his fear of death in the end. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that brings me to uh, an interesting thing I saw on television recently. So Middlebury college is in Vermont 
and I don't know if you saw this or not, Jeff, but uh, the students were were rioting and protesting, and I think a faculty member ended up uh, going into emergency care uh, from a, a serious injury. Um, they were basically rioting um, over a speaker uh, who was going to be there at the university who they didn't like, who they associated with the alt-right or something like this. And so they, they were protesting for, you know, they wanted this the university to censor this uh this this speaker and and uh, and they got violent so these are college students um rioting and hurting faculty physically um demanding censorship on campus okay and so th- there's a professor from this university I, I believe his name's jay perini he was on tucker carlson's show uh, a couple weeks ago and he said something that i thought was brilliant he said you know we proceed with uh, uh, insufficient knowledge. Um, so, you know, I, I, someone asked me the other day, um, a, a film producer uh, said, you know, talking about doing a, a documentary, and uh, she said, are you an expert on Iran? And I said, I said, uh, I don't claim to be an expert on anything <laughs> because, because these days everybody's an expert. And even if you say you're an expert, this, there's 10 people that, that probably know more than you on any given subject um, right at your fingertips nowadays with the uh, the digital social media revolution, but um, listen to this clip by Jay Perini on Tucker Carlson. I just found it to be so spot on. Um, Roll this clip. Jay Perini, professor from Middlebury College. Amen. Well, I'm for that. There was one point in here that I thought was Mm -hmm. so wise, it it stirred my heart, actually, and I'm quoting. A good education produces modesty with respect to our own intellectual powers and opinions, as well as openness to considering contrary views. This is what is lacking in this debate, is modesty. People believe that their way is right and that no one else could have an alternative view. Do you think that modern university life inculcates that modesty in students? Well, obviously it doesn't, and I think it's a problem. And I think it's why we have to go back, unfortunately, to free speech 101 and what is the purpose of the university. And I think inculcating modesty, why, why should we be modest? I mean, I have a lot to be modest about. I don't know that much. None of us do. You yes, don't. I don't. Exactly. You know, we, you know, we all, pres- Robert Frost, I did a biography of Frost 20 years ago, and I love his phrase. He said, you know, we all proceed on insufficient knowledge. Exactly. And, and I think we, you proceed, I mean, here you are, I'm sure debating a million people going over a lot of ideas. You proceed on insufficient knowledge. I'm not accusing you of that because no, I you're right, I do. Of course. I proceed in my life on insufficient knowledge, and that's why we have to be modest. And I mean, I think we have to actually teach people modesty. Yes. And I, I think that's one thing. We, that's where we have failed. And, I, and the problem is we're not really, frankly, seeing modesty anywhere in the culture very often. No, and that's the key to parenthood is raising children who know what they don't know. Really quickly. Okay, so that was, uh, that was Professor Jay uh, Perini. I, I think he's an English uh, professor, if I'm not mistaken. But, I mean, Jeff, that... That really resonated with me um, when, when I heard that. Exactly. I mean, I think he's making the, the point that needs to be made. And I, I, think, I think Aristotle said that the mark of an educated mind is be, being able to entertain an idea without accepting it. So it's, it's being able to look at, okay, maybe I think that I have this opinion or about this set of facts. Let me go ahead and look at the opposing views and see what I think about those, and not getting attached to one or the other. And uh, there's a, a guest on your show that that comes on, uh, Basil Valentine, who I kind of agree with 
his perspective on things, which is all about probabilities. So if, if you can look at a situation in terms of probabilities rather than absolute, it's yes or no, black or white, you have to pick one, then you're, you're reserving your judgment and you're not rushing to a conclusion and you're leaving yourself open to, to refining your view and making it uh, more wise. Yeah, let, let, let's 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 throw something out. Uh, as, as the Italian chef said, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Are you Italian, Jeff? I'm half Italian. Yes. Okay. So, as the Italian chef said, the pasta is ready when it sticks stick it to the wall. You know, so they throw the pasta at the wall, and if it sticks, it's ready. Okay. So let's throw some pasta at the wall. This is uh, Chuck Todd. So this is Chuckster uh, on Meet the Press this morning with Congressman. The ranking congressman, Adam Schiff, who will be leading the Russian investigations tomorrow morning. Um, so Chuckster and the collusion of the Trump campaign officials or whatever with the Russians. So here's his argument. Listen to this and then let's break this down. Go ahead and roll this real quick. Collusion is is sort of what hasn't been proven here between whatever the Russians did and the Trump campaign. In fact, the former acting director of the CIA, who was a uh, Mike Morrell, who was uh, a supporter of Hillary Clinton, he essentially reminded people, took Director Clapper at his word on this show, who said there has been no evidence um, that has been found of collusion. Are we at the point of, at what point do you start to wonder if there is a fire to all the smoke? Well, first of all, I, I was surprised to see Director Clapper say that because I don't think you can make that claim categorically as he did. Uh, I would characterize it this way at the outset of the investigation. There is circumstantial evidence of collusion. There is direct evidence, I think, of deception. Uh, and that's where we begin the investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't want to prejudge where we ultimately end up. And, of course, there's one thing to say there's evidence. There's another thing to say we can prove this or prove it beyond a reasonable doubt or there's enough evidence to bring to a grand jury for purposes of a criminal indictment. But there is certainly enough for us to conduct an investigation. The American people have a right to know, and, and in order to defend ourselves, we need to know uh, whether these the circumstantial evidence of collusion and direct evidence of deception uh, is indicative of more. Oh, I wanna, uh, one. Okay, so what 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 did you make of that climb down, Jeff? It's pretty spectacular. I feel I feel like what he's doing there is is kind of shifting the burden of proof and uh, saying that there's different burdens of proof based on different situations. It, if there's so-called circumstantial evidence, what is it? I want to hear what it is. I want to I want there to be openness in discussing this. We have the right to know what exactly the evidence is, if there is evidence, because I haven't seen it yet as, as of right now. So if there is, like I said, I'm open to changing my view, but let's see the evidence. Let's not just talk about it in a way where it's, where, oh, experts believe this, and people in the intelligence community have, have said this. I want to know what is the evidence. What is the evidence for the collusion, even if it's circumstantial? Tell me what it is. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it seems like it started with uh, uh, first it was you know election rigging, then it was hacking, then it's meddling. Now it's down to collusion, and and I think he 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 laid out the 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 the, the last surrender, which was deception. So now it's it's gone down from collusion. Then he 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 sort of gave way to say no, it's it's well we're really looking for deception here. Um, so it's this incredible um, 
back what he does is he he throws out all these buzzwords that kind of get you to think that that he's on the side of truth and people who are you know using heuristics to make their decisions about what's to, or to form their opinions about what's going on in government will then make an a priori argument from that which which is when you decide what your belief or opinion is first and then you work backwards from that and you try to rationalize it and find facts or whatever that's going to fit this this view that you've already decided is your view yeah it's it's bizarre it's um it's kind of like the 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 the, the, the politicians in America have become like tabloids basically and he he keeps saying american you know, the American people want to know. The American people need to know. This is like um, Geraldo Rivera back in, you know, the 1980s or whatever. Um, the American people, and, and I'm thinking to myself, we need to know what? Like, what What do the American people need to know? What is it that we need to know? Um, right. If, if you're, I mean, if if CNN is a, is a news journalism organization, they should be telling us what we need to know, not just telling us that there's something that we need to know. What exactly, is it? Exactly. Exactly. This, you know, so it's just open ended. Um, I don't know what I don't know quite what to call it. But, you know, I, I could call it fraud. Um, you can call it all sorts of intellectual fraud, or um, you can call it I don't know what to call it. Really, you could call it propaganda, but that doesn't even really describe where we're at right now with this particular story. It's just been spun and respun to the point where it's it's it, it, i'm i'm quite frightened by it jeff because i'm frightened because it, at what point do you get do you go down the garden path that it's just too far and 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 things are just getting so that you know the weeds have just grown so high on this you know i can only see a bad result happening at the end and it's i think the big loser is going to be the government uh, and the credibility of the media is is very bad. You know, I, I don't mind deconstructing and bashing the media, and it, it, and some to some degree that's our job um, here in the sort of the independent media is to to try to hold the mainstream media to account. But it doesn't give me very much pleasure because I know that if the if the mainstream press is so corrupt in their ideas and the way they present information and the way they present you know present ideas and 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 political paradigms. If they're that corrupt, then this is bad for society in, as, as a whole, and it doesn't make me happy. Um, you know, so I'm frightened a little bit about how far they've taken this particular um, line, this thread that is very tenuous. You know, where do we go? You know, is there what I'm saying? Is there potential for some mass meltdown psychologically uh, for the country? I mean, what? What's the potential fallout for this? Because I think it's quite a deep, deep question. I, I'm worried about uh, this. I have the same worries that you do. I uh, decided to attend a pro-Trump march that was uh, that happened in Austin, uh, in Austin, Texas, where I live. And the reason I decided to attend that was because I really just wanted to to get an unbiased view for myself. I brought my camera. And I think you released it on a 21st Century Wire, my footage. And what I saw there was, you know, a, a large group of, of Trump supporters who had positive intentions, a, a, a wide age range of people. And I saw this other group of people with their faces covered and whose 
only goal seemed to be to create discord and in the situation. And unfortunately, some of the Trump supporters kind of fell into their trap of being baited and triggered. And that's sort of what I suspected might happen. Um, and there was a minor physical confrontation. Um, it wasn't anything major. But at, by the end of the event, what, what did give me some sort of optimism was that I saw some of these masked protesters who, I guess they're part of this Antifa or Black Bloc affiliation somehow. I saw some of these people with their masks still on, but they were conversing with some of the people in the pro-Trump march movement. And they, you know, they, they weren't exactly being civil, but they were not having a physical confrontation. They were, they were talking, they were having a discussion. They were trying to at least open some channel of dialogue between each other. And, you know, I don't know what the conclusion was of that conversation, but it's encouraging to me that people aren't afraid to just talk. And I think that, like I said, this problem is on a macro level. It's such a huge scale problem. It seems so big. And I think one of the reasons I made Confronting Sophistry is to just start on the personal level, is to start with me, be an example for the people around me, for the people who are in my life, and just try my best to be that Socratic figure. And I'm not going to be perfect, and I recognize that, but try my best and be an example. And confront people and that's why the show is called confronting sophistry confront people not in a mean way not in an angry way but confront this false logic for what it is and call it what it is and don't get bullied into this this sort of i don't know this appearance of being an intellectual just just talk to people and i think that I don't know what could happen if, if it gets bad. And, and you know, obviously the, the worst that could happen is a, is a JFK-like scenario. And I, God forbid, I hope that doesn't happen. I want us as Americans to, to unify. And we are going to have different opinions. But if we can respect the fact that another person's allowed to have another opinion, but you can confront them in a way that doesn't alienate them from having a, from being part of the discussion. So I think, I mean, even people in the alternative media fall into this trap. And I talk about that on my show of, of wanting to be right about things and, and sort of promoting this view that they're the authority on whatever subject false flags or whatever the alternative media concept is. And I, I encourage my viewers and the listeners right now to, to just decide for yourself. Don't, don't make somebody else a proxy for your political decision-making. Research every angle of a story and don't just watch a documentary on Netflix and assume without doing any other research that that is the truth about what's happening on the other side of the world. Yeah. You know, no, I think you're, you know, to the first point, I think the potential is always there for that conversation to happen. I've experienced that. 
Uh, I, I've had negative experiences and positive experiences um, at protests, um, you know, really hot protests like, you know, on the border um, with Mexico to do with immigration, with, you know, literally people being bussed in from downtown Los Angeles, um, you know, into uh, into a protest situation where it got really almost not it could have got violent if there weren't enough police there, let's say. Um, and then I've had other ones where it was, you know, the law enforcement presence was a little more uh, calm and chilled and then th- that opened up the space uh, for some conversations to happen and it, it definitely surprised everybody so the, the potential is always there for that you know good dialogue to happen it's always there you know the potential for uh, fighting is also there too but um, you know Amer- I th- I, the way I look at it is you know this country especially um, you look at the history of the United States like like most like many other countries but you know, in our short, young history, you know, America goes off the rails. It's, it's, it's always gone off the rails and then it's been, you know, pulled back. And I think it's important for people to acknowledge that, you know, society will go off the rails. It's, it's part of human nature. Um, we're not perfect and neither is government. And so it will, the, the, the important point is that there are people who can help to pull it back onto the rails. And and that has to happen. I think when you really have big trouble is when their people are not available to help get the train back on the rails, and or people aren't interested because um, they're so ensconced uh, in their own sort of world that they've constructed. Um, and, and you know, to, to your point about alternative media and the trap, you know, there I see a lot uh, of YouTube videos, and I've, I don't know if you noticed this, Jeff, but. The, the title of the videos will always be the truth about Syria, the truth about the Ukraine. I don't want to name anybody and, in, in, you know, single anybody out there who does that, um, you know, because he's probably they, they probably have a lot of fans that would get upset if I if I said their name. But um, the truth about this, the truth, about it's just endless. The truth, the truth, the truth, to the point where the whole word of the truth has just been debased and devalued by this person. Um, over time to the point, I don't even want to see the word truth now. It's, it almost makes me a bit nausea, nauseated to, to see the word truth because it's been used by so many charlatans um, it, uh, online that it's just, it doesn't have any meaning to me anymore. And, and, and they're definitely not talking the truth on a lot of the issues. Um, most of the time they're just reading off of a video screen pretending that they're talking extemporaneously when they're not. They've scripted the whole thing. But that that's another that's another uh, discussion about you know the 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 illusion of of of, of video and uh, and so forth. But I don't know if you've noticed this at all. But it it is devaluing the word truth a little bit. Do you think? I yeah, and and I think what those those people who make those videos, I think they're falling into the trap that the mainstream media has set for them in a way. I mean, you have. The New York Times releasing that this video video about the truth is hard and you know the truth about Syria the truth and they make they have all this this nice animated text the truth is hard but someone's got to do it New York Times you know oh, I we're, saw we're, that it, Jeff isn't that amazing that newspaper would have to run uh, an ad campaign an expensive Madison Avenue ad campaign to prove to the public that they're <laughs> still in the business of truth that's incredible on, on itself Jeff. Right. It's, it's what happened to just letting your conduct and your actions speak for itself. I mean, in business, you know, as someone who's been in business for yourself, that your conduct is what people judge you by. You can talk a big marketing campaign, 
But if you don't follow through on, on what you say you're going to deliver, then you're not going to be successful. So, I mean, they're, they're, the fact that they have to prove and sort of, you know, go up on the soapbox and say, truth, 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 and, and they're bombarding you with it, what's happening is that person, the alternative media, knows that and is sort of trying to use that same tactic against them. But what they're really doing is just they're being brought down down to their level. They're letting the mainstream press bring them down to that level where the conversation isn't really productive anymore. Mm-hmm. Because it's all and, about sensationalism and one-upping each other. Yeah, and, and, and also selling their personality to, to some degree as well. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't know, <laughs> I can't watch some of that stuff, but um, I just see a lot of it proliferating. But, you know, the point that you made in, in one of your videos I saw, you were talking about George Orwell's 1984. You know, that's a book that you read in high school, I imagine. And, uh, you know, this, this concept of the ministry of truth, uh, whereby uh, there's a ministry of truth the government had, and basically anything that didn't come out of the ministry of truth was was labeled propaganda, right? And so are, are, are we not seeing a lot of this now, especially with this Russian conversation? Um, sensational. And it's all... Yeah, go and ahead. it's all being carried out. It's all the Ministry of Truth is using social media and the pervasiveness of our addiction as a society to social media as the vehicle for this Ministry of Truth, right? Because Facebook is now going to start, you know, tagging stories that they deem to be untrue. And I think we can guess, and I think the listeners of this show can probably guess which types of stories that are inconvenient for certain invested interests that, that are going to be labeled false. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean it, it's amazing that, that people will allow a proxy organization to, to literally do the thinking for them. Just like uh, Mika Brzezinski said uh, on TV a month ago or something, it's our job to tell people what to think. Right? That, I mean, she literally just said that. So it's it's really in your face with with the Ministry of Truth stuff on on social media, and yeah. what, there's, what's, what's also happening is the the Goldstein aspect of 1984, which is the controlled opposition. It's the the movements that are supposedly subversive, resistant movements that are actually playing into the vested interests of those powerful you know, oligarch type groups. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I'm seeing that, especially with the, uh, the, 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 the way they split the anti-war movement into those who were, um, uh, you know, again, pro regime change in Syria and, you know, those who were pro, uh, Palestinian, uh, for the Israeli Palestinian issue, they, they managed to drive a wedge, uh, between them. So you have people like, uh, you know, anti-war news outlets like Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I mean, she's supposed to be the paragon of, uh, you know, anti-war and Code Pink and all this. And they're all basically backing uh, regime change and the, the, the so-called moderate rebels in Syria for the last five years. And so that, that drive the wedge immediately between the anti-war uh, uh, international war movement, basically. And so I'm thinking, who's the beneficiary of this? Is it, it? It's definitely the establishment. It's definitely 
the U.S. State Department. It's the military-industrial complex. It's you know, it's Al Qaeda. You know, it's it's incredible how that how this has played out. Um, it's one of the biggest untold stories I think of the last politically of the last five years. These are the conversations we need to be having. These conversations, not chasing uh, a, a Russian witch hunt. I right. Think. You asked you asked a very important question there too, Patrick, and it's who benefits. And it's a question that not enough people ask when confronted with a situation that's a little complex and confusing. And and any investigator or police detective is there one of the first questions that they're going to ask when they're trying to solve a crime is who benefits from from this event happening. And more often than not, that is going to give you a huge clue as to who's behind it. Mm-hmm. Oh, listen to listen to this. Listen to this. Okay, Brian Stetler is a guy on CNN. Who I don't. Do you know who he is? He, he's Not got a show. He, oh, he's got a show called Reliable Sources. He's CNN's uh, media expert. Okay, so he has a Sunday morning show called Reliable Sources, which is kind of an ironic, uh, oxymoronic title there from CNN. But anyway, so this is him this morning. So he had Larry Johnson on. You uh, people who. You know, watch uh, RT. Will see, have seen Larry Johnson. He's an ex CIA officer, um, highly highly ranked. He's now a security consultant. He's very good. I've been on a program with him once before. Okay, so this is Stetler basically grilling him. So so here's the Ministry of Truth in action, Jeff. This this is this, just this is this morning just to show you how poignant this conversation we're having is. So this is go ahead and roll this Stetler Kremlin propaganda clip. Listen to this spectrum here in New York. But, but let me ask you about Russia today. Why is it appropriate for any American to appear on a Kremlin propaganda network? Well, it's not a Kremlin propaganda network. You know what the fundamental difference I found in appearing on Russia today as opposed to CNN? And CNN and on MSNBC and on Fox. Remember, I was fired from Fox back in the uh, two, or my contract was not renewed in 2003 because I had the audacity to go on the Hannity and Combs show in November of 2002 and say going into Iraq would be a diversion in the war on terror. I was told subsequently that Roger Ailes didn't like that, wanted me off air. Hmm. So I've had quite a bit of experience with media. What I found the difference with Russia today is they don't do pre-interviews. I've done pre-interviews with your people. I've done pre-interviews in the past when I've appeared on other networks. Just two days ago, I did a pre-interview with the BBC. They were going to have me on air, but once they heard what I had to say, they came back and said, oh, no, we don't need to use you now. So I'm glad you're here. I'm just concerned about the sourcing, the credibility here. You say it's not a Kremlin propaganda network. We'll put that to the side. It's funded by Moscow, so that's why I say it that way. But let's put well, that to the side. I mean, let, let's do you think at, it's appropriate let, for Judge Andrew Napolitano to go on Fox? Okay, okay. So, so what what'd you make of that, Jeff? So uh, what, what the guest was pointing out, I think, was what we were pointing out earlier is, okay, you can say that Russia is Russia today is gets funding from the Russian government. And just like you can say that PBS or NPR gets funding from our government. But what, what he's saying is, look at what they do. Look at their, what their actions tell you about who they are. And he gives the example of, look, you, you asked me for a pre-interview so you could pre-screen me. To, so if I was revealing any information that you didn't want me to reveal, you wouldn't have me on the show. And so that, that action that that these Western media agencies are taking that RT is not taking proves that there's something different happening there at RT. And whether 
whether or not that RT gets every story right is the point. The point is that they're making an effort to just have a, a more real conversation on the air, whereas CNN is trying to control and limit the boundaries of what the conversation can be. Yes, that's a, that's exactly the point. So you know, I've done, I could tell you, 150 live segments with, with RT Moscow over, over the last, uh, say, six years or something like that, okay? Uh, uh, roughly 150. I, I, I lost count after 100, I think, but I'm guessing 150. I, I've, never, I've never been pre-screened. I think, they, I think once or twice... They uh, they had someone t- uh, chat with me because they wanted to to see if I was you know knowledgeable on the subject, uh, and and that's it. Out of 150, 150 times, you know, that's like, um, but I wouldn't call it a pre-screening. Uh, and I've never I've never been spiked by them, and they've never cut me off midstream or anything. And so that's my personal experience there. And so, you know, I won't even get, get a look in on CNN. They would never have me on that network ever um, because they, they, they know what we've said about them. We've criticized them, you know, uh, uh, quite heavily for their reporting and, and especially in the Middle East. Um, so, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there as far as they're concerned. But um, not that they care. It doesn't seem like it anyway. But, but. Anyway, the white helmets, Jeff. We got a couple minutes left. Have have you had a chance to look at some of the videos and content produced by the white helmets? And I'm sure you've seen it on U.S. media because they do. It's on heavy rotation regularly for the last oh, couple yeah. of years. And you know, what's your view? Because I'm talking to you as now as a media professional, and specifically as a, someone on the production side. Um, and and so, you, explain to us what you think about the white helmets and then talk about how much power you have when you're doing the cutting, when you're editing something and and what you're capable of doing in that chair. If you're sitting uh, in any of these networks or if you're at a a production house who's supplying the footage to the networks, just walk us through these two issues. Okay. So I did have the uh, displeasure of watching the White Helmets uh, documentary, and I honestly think it's it's an insult to documentary filmmakers to call that a documentary. I would say that it's more of a promotional video, and you know, if I were to grade it as a promotional video, it would get an A plus. But it it pretends to be a documentary that reveals the truth. Now, documentaries are a, a tool that can be used to reveal profound truths, or they can be used to obfuscate. And I think uh, in, in his film uh, F for Fake, Orson Welles makes a great point about how filmmaking can be used to deceive people. And I know this in my work. I've had promotional videos that I've worked on where I have an interview of, let's say, the, the boss of the company speaking. And I have the power to edit this interview in a way that could make this boss look like a total jerk. Or I have the power to edit this video to make this boss look like the new Messiah. And really that, that decision falls onto me, but it also falls onto the approval, whoever's approving my work. So whoever's paying the bills to create this promotional video. And I argue that that documentary is a promotional video. 
And there's a few things about this this documentary, this Netflix documentary that that really jumped out at me as as things that an honest documentary filmmaker would not do. Um, one of those th- one of those things that I noticed is that there's there's no on screen interaction between the filmmaker and the subjects who are being filmed, and that's very something very common that you see in documentaries. You see the people who are on screen talking to someone behind the camera. Now there are interviews, but when they're when they're in action, when they're doing things, they're acting like the camera's not even there, which is a little odd because people usually react to a camera being there in their normal lives. Uh, the other thing I notice is that if I'm a documentary filmmaker who's trying to make an honest portrayal of who a group is, I need to give some context. In, in this documentary, in this so-called documentary, the only perspective given is that of people within the White Helmets. There is not a single interview with any me- other members of the community in Aleppo. There are not a single interview for anyone who can give us context outside of the group of the White Helmets as to who they are. And that screams dishonesty, just looking at it without even knowing the facts, just looking at it and saying, well, how come I'm not getting any other perspectives on who this group is? If they're such heroes, obviously other people in Aleppo are going to know about them and, you know, respected individuals within Aleppo. So if I was going to really do an honest profile of this group, I'd want to interview other people. And, and so there's just a lack of honest inquiry and when, when you see it, it, it looks like it's being, they're acting in front of the camera. And I, you know, I can't prove that, but they're just, the fact that the documentarian doesn't really make himself a part of the story and doesn't really honestly show what his thought process is as, as a good documentarian does, it makes you feel that there's some deception afoot and that there are some conversations that are being had behind that camera that we're not privy to that are affecting what we see as the truth on camera. Yeah. So, so as a, as a filmmaker, that's something that you, you know, when you're making the documentary, that's something you'd be going for, you know, that'd be on your list basically of things that you need to do. Right. Right. Because as a documentary viewer and most people who view documentaries a lot and are really into them have a very skeptical view of the world. So they're looking for when you, when I'm watching a documentary by somebody who I've never heard of, I'm watching extra closely to see how they present this information and whether they do it in an honest way. So when I looked up Vanessa Bealey's response to this documentary, her short uh, documentary that I think you have hosted on the site, she went and bothered to actually interview people in the community in Aleppo. And lo and behold, they're telling a different story. So now it, it made sense to me why this documentary wasn't really a documentary, it was a promotional video, because if they had bothered to ask the other people in Aleppo, they would have found out a different story, but they didn't want that. And and I think that's clear by their approach just to the production of the documentary. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, you mentioned a bunch of things, too, that I didn't even think about with regards to, you know, the Netflix documentary, talking about, you know, how they react to the camera. And I, well, what I think it... Uh, if you're not reacting to the camera, then what? Then it can only mean you're doing one thing, Jeff. Really, is you're um, you're acting, yep. or you know that's just my experience, obviously. But um, 
you know, unless unless they're these guys have a camera, unless it's the Truman Show, Jeff, and they've got a camera <laughs> trained on them twenty four seven that they no longer react to the camera, which I suppose there's a possibility that that could be true as well. Um, but but you know, it, when weighed up against the other fa- the other points that you've raised, um, it, it seems less probable that that would be the case. That that would be the reason why they're not reacting. But there's definitely, I I feel like a staged, uh, a very much a staged aspect to almost everything everything they've done and produced um, over the last five years. And that, that film being, you know, the piece de la resistance of the whole um, project, really the culmination, uh, you know, getting an Oscar award as well. I mean, th- you've seen a lot of documentaries, Jeff, come on. You, you, you've seen stuff that's won Oscars. Okay. How does that film stack up to, you know, some of the best, how could it, is, how is it possible it could get an Oscar? That's, that's my question. I, I think it's an insult, and it's the reason why people like me, who grew up loving movies, have stopped watching the Oscars because the Oscars has just become this—it's this political vehicle, kind of like the Nobel Peace Prize, which is they were also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's it because it has this appearance of prestige. That that appearance has been used as sort of a cover for inserting propaganda, and it's it's insulting to. To any documentary filmmaker who grew up watching great documentaries, and one of my favorite documentary filmmakers is a guy named Nick Broomfield, who very much puts himself into the story and films everything and has long camera takes where you see the whole scene play out as one continuous scene. And I, I just, watching this documentary, felt insulted that that people... And now people that watch the Oscars, they have this huge audience, are going to go home back to their dinner tables and think that they have some idea of what's going on in Syria. And they're going to you know, promote this while well, Assad and the regime are killing, killing civilians and bombing hospitals, because that's what the title cards in the documentary say. And that's what the White Helmet characters say in this, in this film. So they're just going to repeat it. Yeah, it's a powerful um, film is a powerful vehicle, um, especially uh, artisan filmmaking in in, in the in the format, the cellular, you know, linear documentary format. It's powerful and it can be I mean, I I published an article after that. I said that um, they should get the they shouldn't forget the Oscars, give them the Lenny Reifenstahl Award for Best War Propaganda Film. Um, you know, and I, someone pointed out that's an insult to Lenny Reifenstahl, <laughs> who some people think was a great filmmaker, and, and maybe she was technically. It just so happened, you know, that she was kind of working for for Hitler half the time, and that sort of uh, tarnished her reputation as a filmmaker, of course, because um, you know the, the the Reich went down in flames in the, in the end. But um, but but is you know what is it really? It's, it is really an expensive piece of propaganda. When, when I compare it to other films that I've looked at in the past, you know, war propaganda films, which used to be kind of out in the open, you know, especially during the Second World War, you look at some of the BBC stuff, you look at, um, you know, some of the stuff produced for American newsreels, and they even staged scenes, you know, on Normandy because they, they you know, they didn't have the footage, so they staged it. And then right. they would they would run that, and so it. it what I'm saying, Jeff, is it, it has been around for a long time, but this is different. This is they're targeting a different audience here. Um, I think they're targeting mostly millennials and people of the sort of the liberal um, disposition. 
the sort of people who will uh, have that automatic direct debit from their account every month to give $9.99 to Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or sign on that Avaz petition that they get in their email or change.org, you know, help the white helmets and, and so forth. That, that This is the difference between the war propaganda of the past from Vietnam and, you know, the, 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 the CBS newsreels and all that World War II stuff. This is totally a different deal here. Um, it's working on a whole different level. I mean, how do you feel about it? I, I think that the, the White Helmets campaign is, is about getting people to uh, sort of attach themselves to this, this social idea of social popularity. And they, they care more about the appearance of being good than whether they actually have a positive effect. And, you know, those two things are different. It's, you can appear to be this great person by donating to all these charities, and most people are going to think that that de facto means that you're a, a good person. So that's enough. That's enough for most people. It's enough to just appear to be a good person. And whether or not the things you're doing actually have a positive effect, that's secondary, if not an afterthought, because people are so addicted to social acceptance and and sort of just just wanting to be liked wanting to be accepted and included in society that they'll just settle for the appearance of of something rather than the thing itself and i don't know i mean the 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 worst thing about the white helmets for me was the was the mannequin challenge and i think that was like i thought about it when i watched this mannequin challenge video there's really no way that you could look at that video and spin it in a way that that shows the white helmets in a positive light. I mean, there's two possibilities. Either that victim in the in the mannequin challenge is being neglected while they do a corporate media viral media stunt, or the whole thing is staged. And you really, it's really one of those two things. And when you, when you look at that footage, you can't. You can't spin it any other way than that. So either they're 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 failing to provide medical attention in order to do some stupid media stunt, or the whole thing is fake. And either way you look at it, that's not a good thing. That doesn't make the white helmets look good. No, no, it doesn't. And and the victim in that mannequin challenge white helmets video, the the the, the actor playing the victim, um, he we, we have also seen images of him fully armed uh, in you know Al Nusra terrorist mode. And other reports that I've seen from multiple sources have said that, uh, and this is coming from residents and people in Syria, how they're they're wearing their white helmets jumpsuit, you know, boiler suit during the day. And then, you know, by night, they're terrorists. And that's kind of a euphemism by day, by night. But, but essentially saying they're moonlighting um, as white helmets, rescue workers, but really they're, they're militants, basically. And so this is the group's constantly selling itself as this uh, neutral, uh, you know, non-political, non-aligned, uh, you know, non-whatever. And it's not that's not the case at all. In fact, it's worse. You know, some of them are active terrorists who are, you know, killing people. And we had Pierre Lecorf on the show uh, the the other week, and uh, he basically said, you know, these are people who are responsible for shelling West Aleppo, who who are actually members of the White Helmets are involved in the activities that are prolonging the conflict. 
you know, right. so how, how could they get a Nobel Peace Prize, you know, if that's the case? And is this not worth investigating? Is, you know, but but I think what you're talking about is that cognitive dissonance where people know that they don't want to investigate because they already they have the narrative they want on the white helmets and anything that runs contrary to that. They automatically reject and almost in a kind of violent fashion. Um, have you seen this this type of behavior before? I can name a couple of oh, absolutely. examples, but I mean, go ahead. And, and what I would what I would point to for those people, because we have all these kind of dishonest video presentations of the white helmets uh, shared by a lot of our media outlets. But, you know, Pierre Lacour uh, also shot a video in Aleppo, which I think is an example of a good investigative type of video where he does long, continuous takes that really show you the geography of where these events in Aleppo were happening. So you can see that this White Helmets headquarters is across the street from the hospitals that were supposedly being bombed. And he, he walks you through it, and you see the Daesh and al-Nusra uh, banners next to the White Helmets banners. So you know, it's not it's not like someone couldn't have put that there. But when you see it, you're like, OK, well, this is just he's, he's going into a place showing me what he's seen. And that to me was an honest example of somebody using video for revealing truth. And it's, it's a more trustworthy presentation because it's a long, continuous take. It's not trying to bamboozle me into thinking something. It's just observing the world. And, and that that geography of of the White Helmets headquarters, and it's, I mean, it's bamboozling how people will still attach themselves to to the view, and it's and it's because they don't they don't want to admit that they're wrong, and you know it's it's hard to admit that you're wrong. I've had uh, cases where I'd have to where I've had to bite the bullet and admit that I'm I'm wrong about something, and it's hard. I don't know, if I were to talk to these people, I'd say, you know, you'll feel better afterwards. If you can just admit that you believe something that was untrue, you'll feel better. You'll you'll immediately feel a sense of relief because you don't have to keep maintaining this this lie any longer and, and finding things that will fit with this viewpoint because day by day, it's getting less and less plausible to try to make that point that the White Helmets are a humanitarian organization. I mean, it's at this point, there's no credibility in that claim whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it reminds me, it reminds me of um, the, do you remember Coney 2012? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Now, um, so, you know, I was reporting that um, at the time for another news outlet, <laughs> who I won't mention on there, um, who I used to work for there, and um, not far from where you are right now. And anyway, um, when, when that came out, you know, it was like, I saw the, you know, how I first found out about Coney 2012 is someone sent it to me on social media. It said, Pat, have you seen this? They're very excited about it. They're thinking, wow, this is really cool. This is great. This is something everybody can get behind. This is something that, you know, Democrats, Republicans, whatever your bent is socially or class or, you know, everyone can agree. We need to get Coney. This guy's, you know, taking child soldiers and he's somewhere in the jungles of Uganda. And so there's this huge campaign that got unleashed. They were having school assemblies across the United States. Kids were coming in, smashing their piggy banks. 
and dumping them into pots, all of their spare money, everything, going to this charity, which was called Invisible Children. And it was like the sort of thing on its surface, it seemed like, oh, well, that's really nice. And, you know, then I watched the video and I thought, oh, my God, this is too slick. And, right. and, and that's what made me suspicious was how slick it was. And, and then soon enough, the whole thing collapsed. And the guy behind the film and this, the charity spokesperson had a nervous, a public nervous breakdown, was running around naked in the middle of traffic in San Diego. His name was Jason Russell, who I, I feel sorry for because I, I honestly think that he was a true believer, um, very evangelical Christian young guy who really believed that this was the greatest cause. And he, he you know, he's fulfilling his life's mission doing making these, these Coney films. And then you looked at behind the scenes, you found out, you know, this, the, what, what happened was they were lobbying President Obama to basically deploy U.S. troops in Uganda, and he did in the end. He deployed uh, special forces to, you know, on the back of that Coney thing, even after the whole thing collapsed. But what struck me, Jeff, was that people wanted it to be real. And at some point, they didn't care whether it was fake or not, because the, they love the idea, because people need... People want ideas that they can rally around and it, that, that seem to unite people or bring people together. And I think the White Helmets, to some degree, has that, that they do try to tap into that kind of common um, archetypal kind of feeling that, that people have, this desire to want to unite and come together under some kind of nonpartisan common banner or platform. And that- yeah, go ahead. I was, yeah, I was going to say the Coney 2012 uh, campaign was definitely an important uh, sort of realization moment for me. That's when I was at that time trying to break into the the film industry uh, around Austin. And I had, you know, several colleagues that I had met through my film school experience. And, you know, I was just looking through Facebook and saw a lot of my film school colleagues sharing the Coney 2012 campaign, really excited about it. Because it, it was, you know, using their medium, filmmaking, to, to do what they believed was make positive changes in the world. And what I did at that point was ask the question that we asked previously, who benefits? And, you know, with some quick internet searching, I was able to, to conclude that this is most likely probably a war propaganda piece. And I made that comment on Facebook uh, I guess that was my first foray into the Socratic kind of approach. And I said, you know, to me, this looks like a war propaganda. Maybe you should check out this article. And, you know, I experienced a sort of, maybe not a blacklist, maybe that's an extreme term, but definitely a, cool, a coolness from that whole community uh, of people who, uh, you know, the filmmaking community. And that's sort of when I realized that they weren't interested, the filmmaking community wasn't interested in finding out the truth rather they were just more interested in promoting a narrative and they're great at promoting narratives in the film industry and making um, a cool and making a cool film too. That's, that's also part of it because it, it was a cool film. It was, it was done very well. It was, you know, production wise amazing. Right. And it's, it's almost a focus on style versus substance. And I talked about that in the, in the confronting sophistry series is that there's this hyper focus in film school about, you know, how to do things in a technical way that's, that's really slick and, and really effective in promoting a narrative. Uh, but they didn't teach us too much. I mean, I had a great documentary professor, but other than that, they didn't really teach us too much about 
how to create content that is going to create positive effects in the world. And I think that's something that a lot of filmmakers are missing is what positive, well, what ripples is this content going to create when, my, when I put it out into the world? And I think more filmmakers and people in the media industry need to think about that when they create media. I, I you know, that's a, the, the, the film, the, the creator of, the White Helmets documentary, the the, the co-director and co-producer, uh, jo- jo- I can't pronounce her last name, Joanna uh, Nag. Oh gosh, um, I don't have it in front of me. But her name's Joanna. She's British, British Malaysian, I guess. And so she's. I, I, I saw an in- interview with her from a previous kind of you know international human rights filmmaking conference summit thing, the year before, and she says, "I'm an impact producer." She's, a, you know, I'm a new breed of filmmaker. We're impact filmmakers. We're here to make an impact. We're here to be agents of change, you see. And <laughs> and, and I always found this, that, that approach to me, Jeff, um, may, and maybe maybe I'm just an outdated, you know, relic now, but I always thought documentary films, the main point was was to educate, was to, to give insight and to pass on information or knowledge. And it wasn't to make an impact because to me, making an impact or being, you know, making change for change sakes, it's, it, that's a political pursuit first. And it's an educational pursuit second. Cause then what matters is the style. What matters is the slickness of it. What matters is the narrative or the political narrative and not the content, not the actual, you know, nuts and bolts of that film. I, that's the way I view it. I don't know how you see that dynamic with film because a lot of people have different opinions on that. No, I, I would say that I agree with you on that, but I would say that I think the, the act of having a level-headed approach to it, to telling us to telling somebody a story and admitting that your version of the story may not be the whole truth, nothing but the truth, uh, and being open about that, I think that can have an effect or an impact on the world. It may not be as noticeable. It may be more of a subtle impact on, on the way people think. Uh, but I, I still think that by, by doing a level-headed presentation and presenting the content for what it is and focusing on, you know, truthful content, I still think that that does have an effect. And that's the, the type of effect that I want to have. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know exactly, I know exactly what you mean. You're, yeah, you're, you're veering more towards the, the veritas, um, kind of, you know, um, side of things. There, there's actually, there's a documentary film that, you know, I want to give a shout out, um, uh, to, which is going to be up on the site, um, after the show. And it's called, um, the, the documentary is called Tough Love. And it's about a, it's about a guy in Vietnam who basically started like the equivalent of an orphanage, but for basically for teenage girls who basically got pregnant out of wedlock because it's like a huge epidemic, I guess, in um, in Vietnam, um, very poor country. But it's this guy, and it's his story, and uh, it's one of the most um, and the girl, one of the girls they follow as well, and it's one of the most amazing. Uh, pieces of film that I've seen, and it's it's not very complicated. It's very simple, and uh, it really cuts into this issue that I've you know who who wants to see a film about you know the issue of abortion? I mean, it's just been done to death in America on every, you know over the years on TV programs and whatever that you know. But this was just something that was really simple and really well done, 
and it just conveyed so much through the, it's almost like you're walking around with him and it's almost like you're there, you're there with them and you're, you know, experiencing day to day life in a, in a short film. I, I think we're going to put probably a 26 minute clip on it, but it's called tough love, but it's just one of many good. I mean, there's so many good examples of this in filmmaking, but you know, that's not going to win any Oscars. Jeff, I think because <laughs> no, and I think I think uh, my prediction, I guess, for going forward is that the Oscars will have less and less importance. Uh, you know, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. I don't know, but I think that people are becoming a little wiser to the fact that these organizations and and sort of award ceremonies that keep praise upon people can be used as tools of propaganda. Um, and you know, I'm, ex- I'm excited to watch this, this tough love documentary. It sounds really interesting. I think what, what makes a good, a documentary good, what, like what you said is that it feels like it's a window into someone's life. And, and part of doing that is providing people with context, uh, and perspectives that, that create a rich, uh, you know, layered view of, of what this person's life feels like. And, 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 in a good documentary, you want to connect to the character and identify with them and ask yourself the question, what if this was me? And, you know, obviously you wouldn't be a, a teenage Vietnamese girl, but the point is like, you know, I'm a person, this person's a person, a human being. We have things in common. Our brains work in a similar way. We have similar evolutionary, you know, DNA traits. So let's focus, you know, the, the the documentary is a way to bring people together because they help you empathize and identify with people who may be struggling with something. And that's really exciting is, you know, I don't, it, it, it doesn't have to win any Oscars and we can just ignore the Oscars. As far as I'm concerned is we don't need to create any replacement for it, any other award show, because that'll just be hijacked and co-opted too. I think each person will make the decision on their own what constitutes a good documentary and i will probably be more likely to surround myself with people who have similar views on what makes a good documentary than i do and you know i guess that's really all i I can do yeah no that's uh well well said you know back to the basics we hope anyway um there's a lot of value in that i'm sure Uh, a lot of people agree but uh that's um, we're going to wrap this segment up, uh, Jeff. But um, you know, just give us a quick shout out of your uh, YouTube channel and uh, you know how that project's going as well. And um, and any other, if you have a blog as well, uh, let us let our listeners know uh, where to find your work. Yes, um, I'm continuing to produce uh, confronting sophistry short videos here and there. So check out my YouTube channel it's called Confronting Sophistry. You can also find me on Twitter at Jeff Deriso. Uh, I'm currently in development for a show uh, on Newsbud with uh, formerly Sabelle Edmonds' Boiling Frogs post. Um, so I will be posting updates on that on my Twitter as well. And um, just I want to thank you for having me on today, Patrick. It's it's been a great conversation, and you know I hope I hope the listeners will check out Confronting Sophistry and and try to try to challenge people in their everyday lives to make the difference on that personal level. No, def absolutely, absolutely, and uh, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing more of your work, and uh, we hope to uh, you know speak to you again on this show or any other venues uh, on ACR as well. But uh, thank you very much, Jeff Dorizzo, 
Uh, there's a link to his YouTube page on the show page. We're going to take a short commercial break, uh, and we'll be right back in a few minutes. Uh, hopefully, we're going to connect our next guest live from Beirut, Lebanon, uh, to talk about the recent events in Syria and also inside ISIS, what's really happening, who's really their membership, and so forth. We're going to connect with Marwa Osman, independent journalist, after the break. Stick around. You don't want to miss that segment. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We will be right back after these messages. Tired of boring, stupid podcasts? I know I am. If you want something different, check out Jay's Analysis and Esoteric Hollywood only on the Alternate Current Radio Network. The biggest breakdowns of the biggest films, geopolitics, esoterica, and theology. Shop21wire.com Check out our online store with special deals on official 21st Century Wire merchandise, including men's and ladies' t-shirts. Also, check out our 21st Century Wire stationery, desk notebooks, iPhone covers, and DVDs of live talks. And for Sunday Wire listeners, enjoy your Sunday Java in style with our official Sunday Wire signature coffee mug. Subscribers and members use your special promo code to get 20% off every order. Support 21stCenturyWire.com, click on Shop21Wire, or go to www.Shop21Wire.com. 